You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I invite you to turn in in a Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Um, About halfway through your Bibles is the book of Psalms. Keep going to the right. You'll see Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, the text is in your order of worship, in your, in your bulletin. It's printed for you. If you don't own a Bible, there are a couple on the back table. I, I would invite you to just go take one um, and take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Love for you to have that. But in any way that you can have the scripture in front of you, that's going to help you Okay, as we, as we go through this time. Let me catch this up. We, we started back in September uh, th- to walk through what has been a rather uncomfortable path through this book called Ecclesiastes. It's been uncomfortable because it uniquely challenges how we take very good things and we make them ultimate. What I mean is we take things that are very good, that God has created, that are good. Things like, uh, well, like sex, for instance. God created it, says it's good within the context he created it for. And then we make it ultimate, which means we make everything else in our lives kind of revolve around it. And when we do, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that these things become meaningless, which, which means... Uh, meaningless in this context means it can't hold the weight of our hopes. We want it to do something for us, and it can't. Ultimately, it, it, it becomes insubstantial. And this morning, we look at the notion of success, right? Success is something our culture is rather obsessed with. I don't think that, that needs a whole lot of argument. Uh, our, our culture is driven for success. We're driven for it. We drive our children for it, right? Whether it's for them or for us. We can debate that, but we do drive them to get it. And we nearly deify those who have gotten it. And the question before us is whether or not success can actually meet the promise that it makes. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes um, chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 13 to 16, and I invite you, as is our tradition, to stand in honor of God's word. Like I said, we'll be reading verses 13 through 16. Friends, this is God's word. It is not, um, thankfully, you are not here to... To, to listen to helpful hints from Rick, they would be very short and not meaningful. So instead, we are here to hear God's word, which lays claim on us. Hear it in that way. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. And I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he let. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also meaningless and a striving after the wind. Friends, this is God's word is given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time we ask your blessing. Uh, we We are in this place for various reasons. Our stories are different. But with one uniting factor, you brought us here. And so we ask that you would... um Draw us into your story this morning. Draw our story into yours. 
Lord, some of us here have been playing at religion for a long time, but we don't know you. Others of us are just grasping to you by our fingernails. Uh, still others of us, we have, we're, we're, we're still, we're still not really sure what we think of you and of Jesus. This, this is all new. And so I ask that no matter where we are, you would meet us. You would let Christ and his cross come forward. Let the one who speaks fall to the rear. Because, Lord, if you don't speak, we are lost. And so we ask that you would speak this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Last year at about this time, uh, some of you may remember if you're into sports, but last year about this time, the sports world began to buzz because a certain someone was turning 50. Uh, he goes by the title Sir Airness, uh, his Airness. Uh, Michael Jordan was turning 50 years old, and until a certain current player who took his talents to South Beach, wins a few more titles, Michael Jordan will continue to be considered in many minds, we can debate that, I'm sure, but in many minds, still be considered the greatest basketball player who ever lived, the greatest of all time. And about this time last year, an ESPN uh, senior writer, senior basketball writer by the name of Wright Thompson did a story on Jordan. It was interesting. If you haven't read it, I would, I would love for you to read it at some point, because it's very interesting. What he found was a man who is restless and insatiable to still prove himself. Now you might ask, what's left to prove for a man who has six championships, right? Several gold medals. He's in the Hall of Fame. He has the most profitable shoe brand ever. And who, um, even after 10 years of being retired for the third time, every player that plays the game is in some way compared to him. What is left to prove? Well, ultimately, the answer is everything. Because like our teacher tells us this morning, that ladder of success that we think we're going to climb, it never ends. Those rungs just keep going and going and going. And it can never give you the pinnacle you hope for. And so this morning, as we look at this text, uh, this short text, we're going to be looking at it in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful. We're going to look at what it means to construct success. We're going to look at constructing success. Then we're going to deconstruct success. And then finally, we're going to look at how we can reconstruct some things, Okay. You got that? We're going to be constructing success, deconstructing it, and then building again. All right? Here we go. Now, this passage is relatively short. What I'd like to do this morning is just walk through what the teacher says and then, and then look to some principles that undergird what he's talking about, okay? So first, let's look at constructing uh, success by seeing this from prison to throne, right? This, this narrative of from prison to the throne. Look at it down at verses 13 to 14. The teacher says this. Better was a poor, wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He went from prison to the throne, even though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. All right. Now, here's the thing. Scholars have a hard time, if you, if you were to read uh, commentaries, different thoughts on this passage, they have a hard time telling you how many people are being spoken of here. There's some two and some three and all these different things. Uh, ultimately, for, for our purposes, it doesn't really change the meaning much. But here's, here's what I think is, is happening. The teacher is telling us what is probably a fictional story, right? He's kind of developing this narrative for us of a young man who goes from prison to ruling. And then once he is an aging king, becomes foolish. Now, we don't notice it because our culture is so markedly different now. But the original readers would have, would have found these descriptions of the youth who is poor but wise and a king who is old and foolish to be incredibly counterintuitive. Okay, in the ancient Near East, where this was written, right, this, this, this book was not written 
recently. You know what I'm saying? Like, this was written in, in an ancient time. And in the ancient Near East, um, age was not considered a curse, right? Today we do everything we can to either avoid it or pretend it's not happening, right? There are whole, whole industries created to make it seem like though you're, you, you are past retirement age, really, you're still a young buck, and that is because we hate age. But in the ancient Near East, that was not the case. The older, older people were considered wise, whereas the young were considered foolish. Right? They hadn't had enough life experience. Right? I mean, if we think about it, that makes sense, even though that's literally flip-flopped in our culture. But what's more, we have, we have this notion of the fact that this youth who is talked about as wise, which would have already been like, that's, that's weird. Secondly, he's considered uh, poor. He, he was poor. Now, again, in the ancient Near East, if, if you were poor, there, were, there was one of two possibilities, and probably they went together. One, you were either foolish, you made bad choices, or you were under the curse of your God, right? Those were the options. If you were poor, that's what happened. That's, that's what they believed. That was just kind of a, a normal understanding. But here, though, something different is happening. It is the wise, poor, young man who becomes king. And what this is, is this is basically speaking to our, our, our um, everyday American pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of story, right? This kid gets out of jail, and he works his way from the prison all the way up to the throne. You know, kid makes good. And verse 14, you know, that makes very little sense to us, but here's what it's trying to say. Remember what I said a second ago. If you were poor, if you were in poverty, it was a sign of curse. It was a sign that it was something wrong. You were under curse by your God and a clear sign that you were foolish, right? And that is what everyone thought, which frankly is not very far off of the foolishness that we believe, right? That is what everyone thought. Now imagine that this is you. You're the young guy. You're getting out of prison. You're, you are poor. And I want you to imagine that everyone, this is, you're in your neighborhood. Everyone knows who you are. You are a poor con, who is going to want you to rule them? You think you're going to do good running for office? No. That is the whole point. This guy, this young, wise, poor youth, is so impressive that what he does, uh, he, he is so impressive that people set aside their cultural biases and follow him. In other words, this is the ultimate success story. Steve Jobs has nothing on this guy. This, this dude was so impressive, everyone was willing to give up everything they had believed to follow him. But it doesn't end there. Look down at verses 15 and 16. The teacher says this, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. No end of all the people, all of whom he led, but no one's going to rejoice in him. All right, now, what, what scholars will tell you is that at this point, when it talks about that youth, it's talking about another one. Right? The first youth went from prison to the throne. Now there's another dude. And that other dude, there's no end to all the people who follow him. Okay? The point is that the guy who was the self-made ruler, who went from prison to the throne, went from young and, and wise to, to growing a little bit foolish, is now being forgotten in light of the next big thing. He's now being forgotten in light of the next big thing. And so the teacher's saying, look, yes, this guy lived the dream. He lived the dream, but there's always the next one. There's always the next dude. He's just around the corner. He's coming. And oh, by the way, the, the teacher's very clear. Even that guy won't be rejoiced in later. It's like you got the one dude who overcame every possible obstacle, was such a self-made man. He went from prison to the throne. Everyone thought he was great. 
until the next young dude came who was like, everybody follow me. And they all follow him until the next one comes along. This is why he says it is meaningless. Look, many of us in this room are convinced that success would make everything right with us. If we just achieve enough, we think about this story and cannot imagine anything better than literally going from rags to riches, right? In the ancient Near East, like the prisons they're talking about, they did not give you a jumpsuit. There was, you were wearing rags, literally. If you weren't going to get fed, it's because people from the outside were bringing you food. Like, this guy went from nothing to everything, and we think, if, if that happened to me, everything would be great. And the teacher's telling us it can't deliver. It cannot give you what you think it will. It is meaningless. It is vanity. And then he, he gives us this phrase, it's like chasing after the wind, right? Which is a great word picture. Because the whole point is that you can chase the wind all day long. Heck, you can chase it for your entire life, but you can't grasp it. You can't catch it. You can't hold on to it. You will never get it. And success is similar. Not that you can't get success. You can get it, but it's what you're trying to get from it that you'll never get. No matter how successful, it just won't happen. But what is it that we are trying to get from success? It's, it's, it's that that I want to turn to now as we deconstruct it, okay? So that's constructing success. Let's deconstruct it for a minute. I want to propose that there are um, at least three things that we hope that success will do for us. Now, some of us chase success for all three of these things, some for a combination of any two, some of us maybe one, some of us maybe success isn't a big deal. But my guess is that most of us have some semblance of this. But at the heart of all of these is the belief that success can hold the weight of our hopes. And the first of these is that if we chase success, if we get success, it will give us a name. It'll give us an identity, okay? What I mean is this. Our identity, who we are, what it means to be you is wrapped up in some kind of position or status. I'm a boss, right? Um, uh, I, I, I'm an athlete, I'm a hustler, I'm a, I'm a church leader, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a parent. Right now, what we end up thinking is, I am not sure what or who I am apart from that. And thus, I have to maintain my position to maintain my identity. If I, do, if I lose my position, I lose my identity. And so, I would tell you this, if you have a position that defines your identity that gives you a name, and you are not entirely certain who you are apart from that, then you are asking something from that position that it can never give you. You are looking to success to fulfill your hopes. But you see, it's a false savior. It can't possibly do it. I mean, think with me, think with me, okay? Because at some point, you will not be in that position anymore. At some point, you know, parents... Kids grow up, they move on. They move on. Who am I? You know, at, at some point, if you're a boss, you're going to retire. Look, this, is, this, is what, um, this is what happened to Jordan, right? This is why the dude had to come back from retirement those two times. Like, I, I, I got to get back on the court. This is why he says, and he says in the article, the right times, that he would give away everything he has to be able to go back and play again. This is why the suicide rate is so much higher for men after they reach retirement age. Who am I? I don't know anymore. For 30 years, my, my life was this. I was this guy. I was this dude, and now I'm not that dude anymore. Who am I? 
Success has become the place where we hope our identity will come, and it cannot. The identity we long for cannot come from something so fleeting. So gaining a name, right? Gaining a name, that's one of the reasons we chase after success. The second is that we chase success to prove our worth. What I mean is this. If we are the best at whatever, if we are the best at whatever, we prove that we are valuable. In other words, success becomes for us the proof that we matter. I matter because I did this. Now, for some of us, that's like, you know, some of y'all are school age, that's, it, it has to do with your grades. Like, I, I matter if I make this status, or, or maybe, maybe not grades, but I matter if I make the all-district squad of, of, you know, whatever your sport of choice is. You know, the added perk, of course, to, to, to success in this sense is that being the best means that there is no one like you, right? You are literally supreme. That's great. Now, of course, the problem is, is that we've all been around people who have some measure of success, who, who, who are like experts in their field, and then they begin to globalize that, right? So like they're an expert in the field of like, um, I don't know, microbiology, and suddenly they're pontificating on interior design, right? It's like, you think you know about this too? It's like they know about everything uh, because they tend to globalize. Um, but the problem is, just like with gaining a name, is that if you're looking at being the best to give you worth, then you have to remain the best to keep your worth, don't you? I mean, if we have worth because we are the best and then someone better comes along, what happens to our worth? Gone. Now, here's the reality. Some of us gave up on seeking our worth in our success, but we haven't yet given up on seeking it in our kids. If you have kids this morning, look, I need to talk to you for a second. Why do we think that our children have to be the best at everything. Why do we think that their successes in education, athletics, and the arts will make them happy? Why do we think that? Do you have objective evidence to that? I doubt it. I know we throw up little justifications like they'll have better opportunities or, or whatever, but at root, I wonder if all of that passion is really just about getting our worth from their success. Because if they're successful, I'm a good parent. I'm valuable because my child is so awesome. And I will take you out if you tell me something different. You know what I'm saying? Okay. But here's the thing. If your success could give you worth, it would and you'd be done. Right? It would and you'd be done. But it doesn't. You can't rest. You can't let down. You can't stop. Because the treadmill of worth never stops moving. And if you stop, you're going off the back. So there's gaining a name, there's proving your worth. And the last thing I would point to is that we chase success to prove others wrong. Look, we live in a broken world, right? I don't, I don't know. Maybe you would argue with that. I can't imagine you can watch the news and not think the world's broke. But uh, that means that if we live in a broken world, that we've been wronged, that we've been wounded right? That all of us, to some extent, have circumstances in our lives in which something was said about us. You'll never amount to anything. Why can't you just get your act together? Why can't you be more like your brother or your sister? 
I'm ashamed of you. And then there's the statements that aren't actually stated, right? The parent who abandons you, that communicates that something is desperately, desperately wrong with you. The friend or family member who uses you for their own pleasure and communicates to you that you are a tool to be used for other people's use. That person whose attention that you never could quite get, you always knew I should be able to, and I couldn't quite get it, and it communicated to you that you were not worthy of their time. We hear these messages, whether they are verbally stated or whether they are implicit, and we think to ourselves, if I can just succeed, if I can just do better, then I will show them I will prove that they were wrong. They were wrong to use me, wrong to ignore me, wrong to doubt me. And so proving them wrong, though, isn't just about a declaration. It's not just like, I'm just going to make a statement. It's about, it's about more than that. It's, it's about acceptance. You see, we think, because I, I was, whatever was wrong with me, because of that I was rejected. Therefore, if I'm a success, if I'm a success... I will finally be accepted. I will prove that they were wrong to reject me. And so if what drives you to the office in the morning or to the small group you lead or to the busyness of your various duties or to the weight room one more time, if what drives you there are the words that you constantly hear in your head, then you are desperately hoping success will silence them. You are desperately hoping that success will give you the acceptance that you long for. But my question to you would be, uh, when? When will it? How much do you have to accomplish? How many promotions? How many raises? How many public adulations? How many successful endeavors will you need before the voices go away? But even worse, let's say they do. What happens when your success goes away? Are they right about you if your success fades? Look, this is not a theoretical question. I ask myself this all the time. All the time. I've had people look at me and tell me I'd never be able to plant a church. I've had people tell me you're going to make a terrible pastor. I've had people... um, I've had people's actions tell me that if I let my heart be known, they'd abandon me. This drive is real. It It is in all of us. But no amount of success will ever silence it. You think those voices end because this room is full of people for me? No. Because you know what I'm thinking? What about next week? What happens next week? But the question is why, right? Because, I mean, it seems self-evident to us. We hear the story of Michael Jordan, or we hear the story of a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs, and we're like, man, if I could just do that, if I could just get that and go from this little dinky town to to the big time, like, everything would be great. It seems self-evident. So why can't success actually deliver? Well, let's do some reconstruction, shall we? Because the first thing we need to see about this is the failure of success. Why can't success actually give us the identity, the worth, and the acceptance we long for? Now, to get at that, we need to understand why we long for these things in the first place. And to do that, we need to go back to a story, a story that the Bible tells for us, all right? Because the Bible tells us how we were made for God. That in the beginning, he created us to be with him. Uh, That that it was a promise-bound relationship that the Bible calls a covenant. We talked about those earlier. That the promise was kind of like this. Like we, we depended on him for everything. And he provided everything for us. Right? He was the source for us of 
of who we are, of what we're worth, and he was our place of rest and acceptance. He was all three of those things for us. But in time, we were, we were tricked into believing a lie. We were tricked into believing that God was not for us, that he was not for, out for our good, and that, that he was, in fact, maliciously using us for his own ends. And the only logical act in light of that lie was to turn away from him was to protect ourselves from this wicked God. You can't follow that. We, we've got we've to be able to chase after our own potential, to be who, who we could be, and, and to, to protect ourselves from him. But the problem is, like I said a few seconds ago, it was a lie. It was a lie. And, and when we turned from him, everything came apart. Humanity betrayed God. That is what the Bible calls sin. I know, I know many of us kind of... Uh, uh, grew up with a different understanding, but, but it means that we broke relationship with him and sought our own way, sought our own path of independence from him, independence from his explanation of reality, right? This is what reality, independence from his definition of what right and wrong is, independence from uh, his definition of what will bring us life and what will actually bring us death. We want it like, eh, I'm good with that. I can do it on my own. We think of it as breaking rules, right? They are rules. Uh, that, that, that's true, right? But they're not arbitrary rules, right? That's the way we often think of it. We, if you open up and you, you start reading, like, the, the Ten Commandments for some reason, I can't imagine why you would do that. But if you open up and you start reading the Ten Commandments, you're like, why these? Well, they're not arbitrary. They're connected to a person, right? They're connected to a person. The rules reflect who he is. And so when we abandon the rules, when we turn away from the rules, we're not just like breaking curfew. We're breaking a heart. We're taking a person. We're going, what is, what is intrinsic to you, I care nothing about. I don't care about that. I want to do things my way. You're wrong. I'm right. We're abandoning a person. And the consequences of our abandonment of God, of our turning away from him, was threefold, okay? It was threefold. First and foremost, uh, we went from being in the right to being guilty. Now look, when a betrayal is involved, you cannot avoid guilt. And you know this because you've been, you've been betrayed. I don't care if you're in elementary school or whether you are, you, you, are um, you know, long past retirement. You have been betrayed probably multiple times. You know what it's like. And you know that when it happens... Guilt is there. And the only question is who will bear it, right? So we went from, from being in the right to being guilty. Second, we went from being whole to being broken. The Bible talks about it like this, that all of us, by nature, in other words, not by what we do, but by who we are, are now enslaved to that lie. We live out of that lie. That lie now becomes the controlling, dominant motif of our entire existence. God is out to get me. He's not for my good. And I don't really need him anyway. Do my own thing. Thank you very much. And look, I don't care if you were raised in the church or whether this is the first time you've ever been in a place somebody's talking and you're like, I don't know what this dude's saying. You live out of that lie. And it may look different. For those of you who've been raised in a church, it may look very moral, very religious, very good. You do your duty. Isn't it great? And it's completely independent of God. And you're like, eh, whatever. Can you just take, look at, look at, my, look at my deeds. Aren't they good enough? And others of us, it looks different. But the point is the same. We live out of that lie. We live out of the lie that God is not for us. And so we are what the Bible calls sinners by birth. And that's important because we often think that we are defined as sinners because we sin. But it's not that at all. 
We sin because we are already, by nature, sinners. Our actions come out of our nature. Jesus said, out of the heart comes forth your speech and your actions. Okay? But lastly, so, so of the, the three, we went from being in the right to being guilty. We went from being whole to being broken. And lastly, we went from being in relationship to God to being alienated from him. Okay? When you betray someone, there is something between the two of you that must be dealt with before the relationship can return to what it was. Or even better than it was. Right? And just pretending that it didn't happen doesn't make that go away. You know this. Right? You, you, someone's betrayed you and you thought, ah, I'm not going to bring it up. It, and you'll say something like, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. Right? It's never okay. But you say that and what that really means is, I'll go back to pretending like things are the same, but you ain't never getting me in that position again. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is going from being in a broken relationship to being completely reconciled. Something has got to be dealt with before that relationship can happen in an unbroken way. And this is now the state of every person born. Do, do you see now why we long for these things, for, for success to attain for us? We know that our identity is that of broken guilty before God and alienated, and we hope that our success can make that better. But it can't, because it doesn't deal with our sin. We know that we're alienated from God, but that, that, that we long for the acceptance we were made for, and so we seek to be accepted on the basis of our success, but success can't deal with it, because success can't deal with your sin. can't deal with my sin. We want to fix ourselves and make ourselves worthy by our success, but it, it can't. Because it can't deal with what actually broke us in the first place. The problem with us isn't that we're failures. The problem with us is that we're alienated from God. Success fails. But thankfully, God has provided for us. And that is why Jesus came. Look, I know a lot of us in in this room grew up thinking Jesus was just this dude, long hair, and told everybody to love each other. We, we probably think he probably belonged better in Woodstock than Jerusalem, right? Like, that's the vision. This is Jesus. Um, but Jesus came to do a very specific thing. He came to succeed where we couldn't. But not just to be the success that we couldn't be, but he came to bear our failure so that we might be reconciled to God, okay? Jesus came as the answer to God's promise to make things right. And so in Jesus, God came. Listen, I, I can't say that any more clearly. Jesus is not just some random dude did it better than you. Jesus is God in the flesh. And in Jesus, God came and lived that perfect life of dependence that we were made for. And he lived before God perfectly sinless, but he also bore our betrayal. He bore our guilt before God. Friends, that that is forgiveness. That's forgiveness. I know we tend to think forgiveness is just like pretending things didn't happen. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is bearing the weight of someone's betrayal instead of making them do it. And so in Jesus, on the cross, God bore the wrath of God for the sake of those who deserved it. For our betrayal, for our feverish pursuit of success at the expense of everything. Now listen, this is, this, right now, this is about where the rubber's going to meet the road. So check in if you can, alright? God offers this to us as a gift. You can't get it through your success. I don't care if your success is like, I can get it through working hard enough, 
Your success is, I can get it through being good enough, being uh, churchy enough, coming to enough events, like churches open, I'm there. Or I, I don't care if it's like, yeah, I don't really need church, but I can, be, I can be loving towards others. I don't care what you define success as. God gives it as a gift. If he didn't, it wouldn't be de- the dependence you were made for and need to return to. But because you can't earn it through your success, you also can't fail so badly that you lose it. You just receive it. Like we sang before, it's all of Christ. It's none of you. It's none of me. Right? And when you do, you are justified before God. That is a churchy word, justified. What it means is you are restored to the right. You were guilty, but now you are re- when you trust in Christ, you are restored to the right because you are united to Him in His rightness. You are restored to the right. Look, I don't care what anyone said about you in the past. Before God, in, if you were trusting in Christ, you were declared right. You were declared right before Him because of the faithfulness of Jesus and because of His perfect death on your behalf. Also, you are adopted by God. Adopted by Him. And I know you've been rejected. I know you have. Because I have. But in Jesus, God declares and receives you as his beloved child. And lastly, if God was willing, if God was willing, when you were a failure before him, and you were, let's stop pretending. Look, I was. I am. If God was willing, when we were failures before him, To think you worth dying for. There is no worth that success can add to that. None. In Jesus, you have all the worth that you need. Now let me conclude. Wright Thompson, in that article about um, Jordan, writes this. His, meaning Michael. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, quote, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? Look, maybe that's you this morning. And you are hoping, or just maybe not hoping, maybe just believing that Jordan-esque success can end those questions of who you are, what you're doing. Or maybe you're just believing that That if you do these things, you can silence the words that have been said to you. Listen to, listen to his airness himself, right? It, it can't. And then listen to the God who made you. Success cannot hold those hopes. It is meaningless. It cannot possibly carry them. But if you return to God by faith in Jesus alone, even your successes can be filled with meaning. Because it can be an offering back to the one who has given you everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in spite of our failures, you are true. In spite of our broken promises, you are true to yours. Thank you that, that Lord, when we were in need, you came and you provided for us. And you did so in Jesus. We thank you for that and ask now, I want to ask now, especially for those who are here in this room um, who have been playing at religion their whole life. Lord, if, if, 
If there are some in this room who have been playing at religion their whole life, I pray that you would help them to see that their, their religious successes are worthless and meaningless before you. But that is not a place for shame. That is a place for hope. And would you give them faith to turn to you in Jesus? Lord, for all of us, that's where we need to turn this morning. And so I pray that you would work that in all of us, wherever we are. You would do it for your sake and for ours, that you would make your name great today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.